This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz. Hilmari, we're not working 15-hour weeks as predicted. Uh, no, Jono, we're not. Um, it would have been uh, very nice to have so much leisure time. Um, but unfortunately, um, John Maynard Keynes got that totally wrong. But you're looking at consumption. What have you found? Um, I do think, and, and, and as we go into this period um, post-COVID and looking at um, what does recovery look like for us, and especially us in New Zealand, we cannot continue to consume and create even more stuff year after year. What sort of stuff are you talking about? Um, stuff that we, we as New Zealand are very good at, which is commodities and also exporting of commodities. Um, I think if we look at our export portfolio for the last 100 years, it has not changed. We are still exporting milk powder and wood. Um, and I do think that um, looking towards the future and looking towards this next set of, of how we're gonna create prosperity, um, we should definitely look beyond our traditional commodities. Well, how do you balance productivity and economic growth then? I think it's also looking at it a bit differently. Um, you know, there's a big movement at the moment for this, for degrowth and the degrowth movement. Um, I do have some support for that um, by looking at, you know, let's start looking at how we reduce our food waste, especially with broccoli being $5 a head. Um, how do we share our goods you know, how do we have more effective transport? So all of those things um, will lead to some productivity gains, but it's also about how do we increase um, our exports that doesn't weigh anything. So our digital professional services, which is a tiny proportion of our exports, has never been a focus for us. And I do think um, we talk about, uh, you know, Aotearoa is a great place to live, and we want to attract professionals to come and live here. But then we also have to provide them with a platform so that they can provide their services digitally. doesn't matter where they live in the world. Mm. So you're saying digital needs a, to be a greater part of the export pie. What, what parts of digital? Um, so there's various parts, but I think one of the big parts, if you look at our total service exports, um, professional services, professional services delivered at the digital platform are still very small. And comparing us to OECD countries, you know, um, during COVID it went up to 25% of our total services exports, where um, for the rest of the world it's about 40%. But it's not that it has actually grown, it is that um, our tourism sector, which is also part of the total services sector, dropped significantly. So it's that part that we need to focus on to make sure that we can grow. Currently, it's about $4.4 billion. Um, and I do think with a bit of focus and effort from both the private sector and the government, we can double that in the next 10 years. So what's so bad with doing what New Zealand does best, which is commodities and dairy and the like? 
nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think it's also diversifying what we're doing so that we don't have all our eggs in one basket. Um, and it's still, you know, we still talk about the tyranny of distance. We are a very small island nation at the end of the world. And um, if you do look at us moving to a circular economy and decreasing our international trade costs, the biggest part of that is transport. So moving our stuff around the world, and it has a significant carbon footprint, moving our commodities around the world. Are a lot of countries facing these similar types of questions? I think there are, and I think it's also depending on where you are in the world. Um, if we look at growth for the next 10 to 15 years, we are on the right side of the world, as growth will come from the Asian part of um, the global economy. And they are facing very similar situation, but they have a, a slight difference where if you look at reducing your international trade cost, um, they have the volumes that go in and out of their country. We don't. Um, a lot of times containers move into New Zealand and they leave our shores with nothing in them. Are there are also cyclical factors at play as well, where, you know, demand supply, we've seen shipping costs at high levels after the pandemic, you know, fuel costs and oil costs high as well. Yes, um, and all of these costs contribute to international trade costs, um, where if you look at the provision of professional services on a digital platform, you know, there's no oil cost, there's no shipping cost. And in terms of a switch or helping to realign the basket of export goods that we send overseas. Is this sort of like a medium to long-term plan? It definitely needs to be a medium to long-term plan because it does need to be connected to um, our labour force um, and it is you know, how we're growing our labour force but how we're also attracting uh, people from other countries to come and live and settle in New Zealand. And as you know, currently with the migration settings, we are really struggling to attract migrants to come and live and settle and work and play in our country. Hilmari Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. NASDAQ-listed 22nd Century Group is readying itself to enter the New Zealand market with its very low nicotine cigarettes once the government's new smoke-free laws come into effect in 2025. The plant biotech company has developed the first market-ready reduced nicotine content tobacco plants and cigarettes containing 95% less nicotine. And the stated aim is making it easier for people to stop smoking. Joining me now is John Pritchard, who's 22nd Century's Vice President of Regulatory Science. Well, welcome, John. Hello there, Fiona. Perhaps we could start with a bit of the history of 22nd Century Group. How did it begin? Certainly. Uh, we started back in the late 90s with a very clear focus on developing an ultra-low level uh, tobacco crop. We partnered with leading uh, agricultural centres of excellence around the US and after a lot of work uh, finally arrived at this uh, uh, fantastic uh, tobacco as you said with the 95% less nicotine. Uh, from that um, we took the, the product from the research uh, side and uh, prepared an application for the FDA 
which would enable us to sell this uh, fantastic product in the United States. Uh, we secured that back in uh, 2019. And uh, beyond that, we had a, a parallel application with the FDA so that we could actually communicate on that. The regulations uh, in the United States uh, are very complicated. Uh, there's extensive oversight and a lot of review time. Uh, so knowing how much evidence there is there, um, FDA uh, took its uh, time reviewing that in uh, you know, ex exquisite detail. And uh, in uh, uh, October, uh, sorry, December of 2021, just before the Christmas holidays, uh, we were authorized by the FDA. So now we're able to uh, communicate uh, features of the product, which is unique among uh, cigarettes, given the other uh, restrictions, but the very special nature of our product uh, and the authorization uh, from FDA and the accompanying um, uh, surveillance, if you will, from uh, FDA enables us to go into market and to tell existing adult smokers that this product uh, has 95% less nicotine. And in fact, FDA requires us to state uh, on our product and any advertising that this product helps you smoke less. So we're excited about the possibilities. We know FDA's view, uh, you know, they are working towards making this uh, a requirement in the US. We're expecting the next phase of regulation to complete later this year. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to New Zealand. What's your interest, John, in the New Zealand market? Yes, that's right, Fiona. So our interest uh, there is, as we saw the development of the policy uh, in New Zealand, in fact, uh, based off a lot of research that had been done with uh, our products. Um, we, were, we were very pleased that uh, mm. New Zealand had taken the, uh, taken the initiative, had read the, the findings that have also been covered by WHO, and they really see that as a fantastic policy avenue which will change uh, the public health landscape of New Zealand in an absolutely remarkable way and save countless lives in the generations to come. So we're, we're standing here as a plant biotechnology company that's ready uh, to meet that uh, requirement in market. And in fact, earlier this year, we started our seed bulking program. So this year, we will produce more seeds. Uh, for next year, those seeds will go into the ground they will uh, they will grow up into uh, good healthy plants, uh, and those will be available to service the nearly two billion uh, stick market uh, equivalent that New Zealand has, and it's it's just wonderful to see that progress. So it's uh, interesting you you've done that, John, that. ahead of actually um, getting permission to sell those cigarettes here, aren't you? Because that hasn't been, those sort of guidelines are still being established, aren't they? That's correct. The government is still working out what their uh, specific authorization requirements uh, will be. Uh, we participate in responding to those uh, public uh, consultations as we have all along. And I think uh, from my desk, when I just see the totality of the uh, scientific evidence we have, uh, we're very confident that we'll be able to meet whatever those requirements uh, ultimately are.
You were recently in New Zealand, John, and, and met with me, but um, what happened when you tried to meet um, the health minister and other officials? Right, that's uh, that's great. Um, well, obviously, some people are busy, so we, <laughs> we couldn't always meet. Um, but I did meet, uh, had the opportunity at the fantastic uh, biosciences uh, conference in New Zealand uh, with uh, Minister Verrill and just really extended uh, my um, congratulations on the policy and for what it will mean uh, not only across New Zealand, but around the world as well. You know, for too long, uh, highly addictive cigarettes have caused untold damage. And, you know, we bring uh, another uh, tool, uh, you know, to the fore to help change that. You weren't able to get a one-on-one -on -one meeting with her, though, were you? No, she, uh, she, she sort of whirled in and uh, gave a, a, a good talk to us, uh, all in conference, and then uh, was on with her other business. But, uh, you know, to be quite candid, uh, the public consultations are extremely well structured uh, in New Zealand, so we have plenty of opportunity to comment. And I participated in the select committee hearing uh, in the lead up to the uh, regulatory discussions. So plenty of chance to uh, help, uh, support, share our experience, share data that we have. You also got a bit of a shunning from from other local media. Is that the sort of response you've had in the US as well, or is that sort of just New Zealand specific? Well, we had a, a, a very long and detailed interview, in fact, I say we, I did, uh, with uh, the Chicago Tribune. Uh, we've previously uh, spoken uh, with um, uh, Politico uh, and others. We've had syndication across the Bloomberg Group. So I think in um, in the US it may be slightly easier, but generally we find um, there's media interest. It's a fantastic story. This uh, unique uh, company, which yes, we we work with tobacco, but our mission is very different indeed from uh, the tobacco majors. And you're not backed in any way by the major tobacco companies? No, we're, uh, we're standing on our own two feet on uh, the NASDAQ. Um, New Zealand, you've talked about potentially growing the plants in New Zealand. Um, what may be the barriers to that, given our genetic modification laws? The current generation of uh, seeds that we're boosting uh, in the US uh, we'll be using our non-GM technology. So, yes, our first generation uh, was GM, but as the techniques have developed, as we've developed our own uh, skills and some of our uh, partners have, we're now able to do that with a non-GM. So in terms of growing in New Zealand, uh, is that something we can do? Uh, yes, we can. Uh, are we doing it today? Um, not yet. <laughs> Some people question whether um, having a very low nicotine cigarette will just mean that people will smoke more. What's, what's your reply to that? That's not true. And you've got studies that show that? Um, the, the FDA has studies that, uh, that show that. There are studies that have been conducted in uh, countries outside the US that have shown that. So what we're talking about is at least a 95% reduction in nicotine. There isn't enough nicotine uh, in the product to uh, create or sustain addiction. Um, and while that is uh, you know, a, a thought that does come to mind for some people, 
The data shows categorically in numerous studies that in adult smokers switch to these products, their consumption of smoking goes down and the other benefits that the data shown in terms of increasing quit attempts. So the, the contribution of the low nicotine policy to New Zealand uh, and its public health is absolutely uh, immense. So wasn't the, our interest wasn't the only part of the uh, New Zealand legislation. There are other elements, but an assessment uh, by New Zealand researchers independent of us concluded that 97% of the health adjusted life years, and I, I believe I'm right at that figure, uh, was contributed uh, from the low nicotine policy alone. Um, the, the other elements will, of course, uh, contribute. So these are the age changes uh, in terms of purchase and uh, the uh, change in the retailing uh, environment that the uh, law uh, creates. But we're certainly excited about ours. Nonetheless, it's the smoking that actually damages your lungs as opposed to the nicotine, which is the addictive part. I spoke to Nick Wilson, who did, did the New Zealand study, and he, while he accepts that it's a good tool for cessation of smoking, he thinks vaping may be a less harmful one. I mean, is, is vaping your competition? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, the, the, there isn't one type of person in the world, uh, thank goodness. Um, we're all... We all have our different preferences and choice. What I'd say to, uh, to 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 Nick is, look, vape's been around a long time. It's not been around as long as uh, highly addictive cigarettes, that's for sure. But in a number of markets, vaping has been available uh, for five, ten years. And yet there are still tens of millions of smokers in some countries. Why? Because vape hasn't uh, appealed to them, hasn't been accessible to them. Um, hasn't agreed with them, you know. I know uh, that some people, you know, find it very drying in their throat and uncomfortable. So even though uh, the science shows uh, the different levels of toxicants in vapor products, it hasn't worked for everyone. And so with us bringing uh, this unique product, this unique offer to market, um, you know, we're excited and we're confident off the data that this, as the FDA uh, requires us to say, will help you smoke less. And just finally, John, um, what competition do you expect in the New Zealand market? Are, are you leading the field and do you expect others to try and enter as well? We are we a are world uh, leader in low nicotine tobacco uh, plant technology. Um, we will uh, meet that market uh, requirement uh, and we're confident that uh, that others will be um, watching this situation very closely. They say there are established uh, companies in the market selling their highly addictive cigarettes, but those products will no longer be available unless they comply with New Zealand law. BDO Advisory Partner Kimberly Simon is with us now. Thanks for joining us. What are the main issues facing businesses right now? Uh, so as part of our survey is in this release, uh, we're seeing those business financial measures really coming out on top as, as key causes to negative wellbeing. 
um, followed closely by the clearly linked economic pressures that, that businesses are facing. So that's the likes of our inflation rates, our, our interest costs, um, the costs of resources as well. Um, the, the next um, key thing in there is, is those resources. Um, businesses, are, leaders are still finding it hard to staff their businesses. Uh, and new to our, our report this time around is, is ESG coming through as quite a um, cause for concern for business leaders. What sectors are most gloomy? Construction, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, of course, the, the housing market um, isn't doing so well, and, and that's really having an ongoing effect onto our construction business leaders. Retail is also really suffering with, with the increased um, cost of living for our consumers. They're no longer out there in retail businesses spending their money. Well, how are they attempting to get through then? Uh, so what we're seeing a number of our clients doing and what we're working with our clients to do is, is having those key um, strong financial management uh, in place. Um, so making sure people are forecasting, making sure they're staying close to their numbers, looking at their gross profit, their net margin, and, and looking at all of those facets across their finances um, to try and scenario out what the next six to 12 months can look like. What does the outlook for them look like then? Well, at the moment, it, it, as we said earlier, it depends on which sector they're in, um, but it's that planning ahead and making sure you know what it's going to look like. It is going to be different and there are different levers that you can pull um, to make sure that that outlook improves. So, for example, if you're, you've got a couple of big contracts on and you're looking at the prices that you're charging under those contracts, you might be able to make some changes there. Um, or you may be able to cut back on some costs that are no longer necessary. So it's really making sure business leaders are looking out to the future and under the status quo, what does that look like financially or what could that look like financially? Because we are looking into a bit of a crystal ball, but what control can they have as to what that future position could look like? Because the outlook looks pretty grim in terms of the economy um, forecasting a recession this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we keep hearing through through the media. But of course, we had the information coming through last week around the inflation rate coming back a wee bit. Um, I did think the headlines were potentially a bit overstated in that respect. It didn't come crashing down, but it did come back a wee bit. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that move of the OCR that we saw about a month ago now. Um, and, and with those mortgages rolling over, what that will do to um, the general cost of living of, of people and, and therefore impacting on that retail sector in particular. That OCR move came in after you did the survey, is that right? Uh, the OCR movement was before we did the survey, but uh, the inflation rate uh, came through after we'd done the survey. So it was okay, all so there, I think the inflation, yeah. The OCR was that, around that same time we were looking at. So if the inflation data came in when you were doing the survey, you may have seen slightly upbeat mood? Um, look, I think it's still high. I think the cost of doing business is still high. It's still in the 6.7, I think it was last week. So whilst it's coming back, which shows that some of the measures the Reserve Bank have taken um, have had an impact, um, business leaders, it's looking into a crystal ball as to what they think the future will look like. 
when uh, when we do the survey, we look at how the people are feeling right now, but also we look to how they're going to feel in six months' time. And we are seeing a slight uptick in terms of how they feel their well-being will be in six months. And, and so they are feeling slightly, and I stress the word slight, more slightly more positive um, about the future um, than they do about their current climate. Is the election weighing on their sentiment? Um, certainly in that six-month view, that came through um, <laughs> loud and clear. Uh, we don't yet know what, what government we're going to have or also which, um, what promises either government are going to make in terms of those political parties as they come up to the election. So um, that uncertainty certainly does play on business leaders' minds. Do they see inflation pressures and labour shortages easing slightly? I don't believe so, no. Um, I don't think those specific questions were asked as part of the survey, but I certainly don't think... Um, people are seeing an end to that yet. However, the OCR and all the financial commentary I've been reading, um, it, it looks like that may even out. But as I talked to you before, we've got mortgages rolling over and, and loans within businesses rolling over now into those higher interest rates. So I don't think we've quite seen um, the full impact of those increases yet. Uh, some business leaders worry they may fold in the next six months. Look, I... I can't answer that as part of the survey, but I certainly think there will be business leaders out there struggling, and that certainly may be one of the questions um, that gets raised and that they're asking around their board table as to what decision they should make about the future. Um, so succession planning um, certainly comes, comes into play as to what business leaders should be kind of thinking about looking forward. And those pressures may come, become more prevalent in construction retail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we just need to, to wait and see, I think, at the moment. But as I said, look at those scenarios when, when the, the business leaders are looking at their financials, um, looking at, at how their cash flow is going to play out. If they're staying close to them, they should be able to pull some levers to make some changes. And if they're not going to be able to, then potentially make those tough decisions. Kimberly Simon, thanks for your time. No problem at all. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Children's Merino Clothing Company, Little Flock of Horrors, was going great guns. Then there was COVID, and now a recession looms. Co-founder Lucy Wildman joins me to talk about how she's navigating the challenges. And Lucy, how would you categorise how business is at the moment? I think that um, I'd categorize it as, as uh, cautiously, um, I think everybody's just being very cautious. I've noticed in my, um, you know, obviously in children's clothing, uh, people are very, um, are very scared and cautious to be placing big orders. Um, and they're just kind of on tender hooks at the moment, kind of waiting to see what's going to break or waiting to see what that next path is. Um, so I think everybody's just, yeah, just being and, and holding their cards very close to their chest. Whereas before, um, we have a, quite a network of, um, of brands and, and um, you know, mums and also retailers that all kind of communicate with, it, with each other. And I've found that everybody is just kind of being a little bit, um, you, you know, just, just kind of holding back on, on saying too much as to what's going on at the moment. You, you've got a strong background in exporting and um, brand development, though. How does that help you? Yeah. 
So that I think that having a diverse background has meant that we're able to pivot. So we're able to kind of notice a trend or notice that something is happening and make a very a quick fire decision as to okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna move away from exporting, for example, and we're gonna focus more on domestic or even just within week to week coming up with things to perhaps hit those targets and hit those numbers that we need to be getting for our longevity. Um, I, I guess the advantage to having a small business is that we can make these decisions very quickly. We don't have to go through, you know, layers and layers of corporate management to get something, um, you know, to get something on the move, which is great for us. What's an example of something recently where you've had to make a quick decision? Uh, probably our most recent thing is that we've really pumped up our website presence in terms of moving to a new website platform. Um, in the past, we were kind of on... Um, on a geeky, nerdy platform that was great for um, my husband to be able to develop and code, but it meant that somebody like me who doesn't have any experience with that um, couldn't go in and make a quick fire decision to, hey, let's do a bundle on two products, save $20, save 20%, whatever it is. I would have to get him to do it. Um, so now, you know, just this morning before I got on the phone with you, for example, I was figuring out how to give um, a discount that I'm going to be sending out to my email after I my email database after I talk to you, um, spend, you know, X amount, get free X. Um, so it's just those kinds of things. And, and when you see those numbers come in and when you see those things actually having an impact, it makes you feel like it's the right decision. You had to pull back from the US market, which was hard won. How was that for you? Um, the US market, I mean, it's quite, it's kind of funny because I talk about things in kind of BC and AC, so before COVID, after COVID. So before COVID, um, things were a lot different. The marketplace was different. Um, we actually have a men's and women's base layer brand that we sell to America as well. Um, we sell that primarily through Amazon. And what have, what was great was that um, Amazon was not the humongous juggernaut that it is now. So you could have a point of difference with your brand over there. And our point of difference was um, at that time, we were getting everything made in Fiji for that brand. New Zealand Merino made in Fiji. So that was our point of difference. And, um, you know, we sat kind of, you know, just in the mid-range price point. Um, and then what happened was Amazon, um, at that stage, Amazon only allowed brands to enter the marketplace. And then they opened it up. So every factory in China, every, you know, every man and his dog could set up um, a store on, on Amazon. So that really impacted that, um, that part of our sales. Uh, we also had a showroom on the east coast and the west coast of america um and that but that just proved to be in terms of logistics um even shipping you know shipping things um before COVID, it was quite reasonable um i mean during COVID and even after COVID, now shipping samples a box of samples to america for example would just cost it's hundreds and hundreds of dollars um and it's just and, and that amount you know that when you see that invoice come through that affects your bottom line um, and also the thing with these th with shipping, for example, before you had table rates and you knew what you were going to be charged, but now um, there's there's no stability and there's no precise shipping. Um, you know, there's no precise shipping rate that you can figure out how much you're going to pay because there are emergency excise taxes, there's um, surcharges, all of these things that you kind of have to have a crystal ball to be able to, um, know, you know, know know what you're going to be charged. I mean, these are all massive challenges. As an entrepreneur, how do you stay mentally strong and, and sort of navigate that? 
Um, probably a glass of wine at night. Um, <laughs> that helps helps to ease that. Um, I think having, um, like I said before, about that network of, um, and they're mostly ladies my age that own these brands. So even just sending a text, you know, and just being like, hey, what's happening? You know, like, how are you guys doing this week? Um, having that support system of, um, of peers, I think is probably what it is. Um, being able to um, feel, you know, make you feel that, that, oh, no, you know, I haven't been good this week, this month. You know, oh, the weather's too warm to sell Merino. Um, you know, just having that open dialogue has been really great in making you feel like, hey, I'm not the only one out here. Recent examples of lower paid, vulnerable migrant worker exploitation have highlighted the importance of meeting minimum employment standards. Duncan Cotterill Senior Associate Jeremy Ansell discusses in this week's Toil and Trouble. Jeremy, let's start with an ERA case from this month, I think it was, um, in which the trustees of a church were ordered to pay 164000 to two exploited migrant workers. What's the sort of detail of this one? That's right. So this is the Labour Inspector versus the trustees of Jesus Aroma Church Trust. Um, the Jesus Aroma Church Trust was set up uh, to spread Christianity into New Zealand. They have links with a couple of quite large Korean churches. So there are a whole range of people here who are basically intermediaries who have associations with the trust and also with the Korean churches. So this trust was set up to um, spread Christianity into New Zealand, but as it transpired, they also operated a separate commercial venture, which was a Taekwondo Academy in Dunedin. And the trust recruited two Korean workers, a Mr Choi and a Mr Jeon, uh, who were apparently going to be part of this mission. But in reality, what the two employees actually did was they ended up doing a lot of work for the Taekwondo Academy down in Dunedin. Right. Um, the issue here was that the two employees over a period of time have both made quite significant um, payments to the trust, uh, and these have been found by the Employment Relations Authority to constitute what are known as premiums, so a payment made by an employee in order to secure um, employment. Essentially how this operated was there was a large uh, pool of money that various people put into the pot, uh, and the money was paid by the two employees, and it was apparently paid as some sort of sponsorship donation. Uh, so they thought they were contributing towards the mission and the goal of spreading uh, Christianity in New Zealand. However, the ERA took a step back and they found that the payments were actually being made by them with to secure employment, and on that basis they were found to be unlawful. So this is fairly fact-specific, I guess, but I mean, how common is this sort of stuff, is it? Uh, it's relatively rare, but there is a provision in the Wages Protection Act which outlaws um, premiums, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an employee making a payment to secure mm. uh, employment. And the issue, uh, quite often... Uh, quite often people make these types of payments in order to secure employment, but they end up on independent contractor agreements, so they're not caught by the various pieces of legislation. Right. Um, but in this case, the um, Employment Relations Authority found that the, the payments were unlawful. So, so people, so it's not that uncommon for contractors to actually pay 
people to secure employment. How, how does that, that's right? That and we've seen it with other industries um, mm. in New Zealand too. So there are examples of adult entertainment workers, and we may come to that. But where they pay um, what have been described as bonds to the clubs that they end up performing their work at, but it's actually a payment that they're putting down in order to secure an opportunity. Um, but the going back to the Jesus Aroma Church matter, the um, ERA also identified a number of other issues here. It wasn't just that these these two workers, Mr Choi and Mr Gion, were um, making payments to secure ongoing employment. There were also issues to do with the church trust not being able to pay them um, the minimum wage for the hours that they'd actually worked. They weren't paid for public holidays that they worked on. And there were a number of other breaches that the ERA found, including a, um, a massive lack of record keeping by the, the church trust. Uh, moving on then to adult entertainment workers and their exploitation. This is a topic you've discussed on this segment before, but it's sort of been coming up again. We've seen a bit more news around this lately. That's right. So the issue here is there are a large number of entertainment workers, and these are dancers, um, strippers. They work in adult entertainment clubs, and the there has been a long-term practice of these workers being put on independent contractor agreements. And, of course, if you're an independent contractor, you have fewer rights than employees do. You don't have access to leave entitlements. You don't have access to personal grievance provisions, yeah. that type of thing. Um, the issue here is that these contracts include a number of uh, quite dodgy clauses, things like fines. Uh, a number of these workers have been um, fined for things like being late, uh, using their cell phones and that type of thing. There are also issues with how the workers are paid for the work that they're performing. A number of them have reported receiving um, large tips from customers but receiving less than 50% of that right. tip for themselves. And there are also um, issues to do with, uh, as I mentioned before, these workers having to pay bonds to the particular club in order to basically secure the um, opportunity to perform the work in the first place. Where all of this has landed at the moment is a, um, a I guess, a collective has been set up called the Fired Up Stilettos Group. Yeah. And this is a, a collective group of workers in the adult entertainment industry who are banding together and who are seeking greater protection uh, for independent contractors in their type of situation. So they've present, presented a petition to um, Parliament to strengthen the rights of independent contractors and also to strengthen their general um, working conditions and pay. Because this uh, employee versus contractor thing has sort of already been looked at, right, in the context of Uber and things like that as well? It's been looked at in numerous um, contexts, mm. yes, but uh, it's not been specifically looked at in terms of adult entertainment workers. Um, there's been a couple of examples recently. There was the Calendar Girls outfit in Wellington who uh, ended the contracts of about 19 of their adult entertainment workers without notice, without process, because those workers were complaining about uh, the conditions of work that they were in at that point in time. So because there's no employment law governing these types of relationships, they're independent contractors, because of that you have these companies who are sort of running roughshod over basically any sense of, of fairness and equity towards these workers. And it's possibly a situation that's going to have to require some 
uh, regulation in the future. Yeah, otherwise. I was going to ask, is, do you have a sense as to where this might all sort of go, how, how far this might have to go to, to get what they're seeking? There were murmurings recently, you may recall, about a tripartite group being set up to look at employee versus contractor and the distinction, what is an employee and what is a contractor. Um, I understand that part of that piece of work was going to look at general conditions for independent contractors as well. Um, however, as with a number of other policies at the moment, that piece of work's been put on the back burner. So uh, it remains to be seen what's going to be done in this area. Certainly I'd suggest that there needs to be some um, form of regulation as to what can go into these contracts to make sure that these oppressive type clauses don't work their way in there. You've got two competing principles, I guess. You've got the sanctity of a contract. There's a basic idea that the parties should be able to agree to whatever they like, mm. but that, that needs to be balanced with a sense of fairness as well and ensuring that these types of oppressive clauses don't work their way in there. Finally then as well, we've had this Members' Bill drawn, which would make it, well, amend the Crimes Act to make it an offence for an, an employer to basically not pay in employee salaries? That's right. This is the Crimes uh, Theft by Employer Amendment Bill. It's a private Members' Bill in the name of Labour MP Abraham Omer. Um, and what it's seeking to do is make it a criminal offence for an employer to intentionally withhold an employee's uh, salary or wages or other uh, entitlements that they, they're owed, so that could include holiday pay and other right. entitlements covered under the Holidays Act as well. At the moment, there's various theft provisions set out in the Crimes Act. However, there's nothing uh, specifically dealing with theft by an employer of an employee's entitlements. Is that because there's other protections in place? Uh, there's a provision dealing with theft in a special relationship, but it's yep. that's slightly different, and it doesn't um, actually tackle this type of situation. So I think this is an attempt to... Um, I guess to emphasise the importance of minimum entitlements and standards and to make sure that uh, companies don't continue to circumvent paying their employees the bare minimum that they're entitled to receive under the law. This bill, uh, bear in mind it's a members bill, but if it were to pass there would be fines introduced. An individual who was an employer could be fined up to $5,000 or a term of one year imprisonment for failing to uh, pay an employee their entitlements and a company that was an employer would potentially be fined up to $30,000. The difference here is that these fines are much higher than the individual limits currently set out in some of the pieces of employment legislation such as the Employment Relations Act and, and Holidays Act. Would it cover company directors as well or does it not go that far? That's one of the issues with the bill as it's currently uh, drafted. There is no um, ability for a director to be subject to a, a claim. Uh, for example, in health and safety law, there's a provision in there that allows directors to be subject to fines or even imprisonment if they're knowingly involved in a breach. So I would suggest there would need to be a similar sort of uh, carve-out in this bill for directors if it were to see the light of day. Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. Joining us now is John Cuthbertson. So, John, in terms of your response to what this report says, anything surprising or did we know it all already? I think we knew most of what was coming. Uh, no real significant surprises, possibly just the, the low effective tax rate uh, of, of the rich. When you look at all economic income, was probably a little bit lower than most would have expected. So that gap wider than what we may have known? Yes, and why is that? What factors are at play there? Look, there are a number of factors at play there. Um, 
I, I think one of the main things to take into account is that when you look at economic income, it's a very broad concept and it's not what we're taxed on now. And it picks up all sorts of things like um, unrealised and realised gains on ca capital assets, which can include property, businesses, um, all that sort of stuff. So when you take that into account, that's not taxed currently by anyone. And that group of individuals has a large portion of their income base, if you like, from those sorts of assets and very little in the way of actual um, income from salary and wages, for argument's sake. Mm, so are they paying a fair share of tax or not? Well, they're certainly paying a fair share of tax when you look at their personal income tax that they're paying on their salary and wages. It actually came out at about 30%, which is pretty close to the statutory rate, which suggests that you know there's broad compliance there. And there's another 10% of tax being paid within their trust structures. Uh, so, so the rest of it really, when what's driving down that low rate, all relates to things that no one else in New Zealand is paying tax on at the moment either. And that's pretty much um, appreciation and asset values over the um, period that they looked at from 2015 to 21. And when you take into account that period, especially 2021, was a significant increase in housing and, and all sorts of other assets uh, as you went through um, that quantitative easing process we had. Um, you can su suddenly see why there's a huge amount of sort of paper income, if you want to call it that, being generated in that period. What does this report do? It makes no recommendations. Is it just helpful information to know? Well, its stated purpose was, was really to provide some data for further policy work going forward. And that was a criticism that the Tax Working Group had back in 2019, that there just wasn't a decent data set there, particularly for the high, high wealth individuals group. Um, we have... A, a data set, if you like, for the general population, which Department of Statistics do every so often, household economic survey that's referred to as. Uh, the last one that this report used, um, or the Treasury used, was in 2018, uh, and that's what the comparison that they did was from. Will this be used as a tool to introduce some kind of capital gains tax? Well, that wasn't the stated deliverable uh, and this was supposed to inform and shape tax policy development going forward. Now I, I guess the temptation here is always to say in the now what were the big drivers here of this gap and you know the big driver seems to be that we do not comprehensively tax capital gains in New Zealand. We, we, we tax quite a number of them in various shapes and form by deeming them to be income but not um, a more uniform capital gains tax. The other interesting thing that came out of the report was that um, the high wealth group that they surveyed, um, about 67% of their uh, assets and value was sitting in trusts, or it, it may have been slightly higher number than that in actual fact. But um, So there, there could be some movement on the, on, the, on the trust front as well. But you know, I think that might be a little bit premature because on that trust front, we are waiting to see how those trust disclosure information comes back in and, and what will come of that. And, you know, the reality in the trust structure as well is that most of those, that income that's coming flowing through in the survey is from appreciation of assets held, not, not income that's not being taxed mm. in the general sense. And how sense. do we compare with... How do we compare with the rest of the world in terms of our um, spotlight on wealthy individuals and in terms of where they sit paying tax? 
Look, I think it's um, it's broadly similar. We we might be slightly ahead of the curve here, but um, the US, uh, a body in the US, did something similar uh, very recently and and came up with um, not dissimilar um, effective tax rates for for their they're wealthy. Um, it wasn't quite as sophisticated as ours, though. Some of their data came um, directly from publicly sourced information. In terms of what the headline figures tell us, though, is it's easy probably to go out and attack these people and say, this is unfair, you should be paying more. But there needs to be a deeper conversation about what, what's actually fair. Correct. And it comes down to the fact that these people earn so little of their income in reality from salary and wages and that most of their income is from investment. And when you think about that, um, that's been the big category that either has a lower tax rate or um, we've had a significant amount of capital appreciation which is just not taxed, either on a realised or unrealised basis. I mean, no one in the general population would feel that happy about paying tax on an unrealised basis on the accretion and value of their house, for argument's sake. I mean, I know every time we've talked about the bright line and other sorts of taxes, everyone jumps to have an exclusion for the family home. But, you know, that's just one part of the mix here. And will this information help set you up to be more informed and, and others within your sector as well? Look, I think it will help. Um, there is the, the data that was collected would have to be... a um, aggregated and anonymised, but we don't necessarily have ready access to that data because one of the arrangements with this was that it would be, de- you know, anything that could establish an individual would be destroyed, a- and I understand that process is in, in place now. Um, but you know, published results like this and and other reports that are coming out all the time um, will give us a you know a, a wealth of knowledge that we haven't had previously, and that's been a key criticism in the past that. It's almost like people have been making it up on the fly. There's been no data to support what people want to say or, ha- or how you inform good tax policy. OK, John Cuthbertson, thanks for your time. Thank you. Pablo Krauss is the CEO of EcoStore, once a household brand that was pioneering on the green scene in New Zealand. But how is it sitting now some of the rest of the world has caught up? Pablo joins me. Um, now tell us how the brand is keeping up in this space. Uh, look, it's amazing what's happening now because the green, green space really is becoming the main space. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing this for 30 years this year, so it's really exciting for us to be um, still doing what we're doing and I guess never resting. Um, that's what we're saying. We're always looking at new products and how we can innovate. And a lot of the innovation now is actually more around how we make, uh, you know, how can we remove our packaging? How can we reduce the, the water that we're shipping? You know, all of these types of things. How do you make the proposition resonate with the average New Zealander? Um, I think in New Zealand, it's very much top of mind and it used to not be top of mind. So now that we are seeing more and more brands come into the space, it's actually creating more and more awareness. And for EcoStore, it's not necessarily around um, looking to, for our products and buy our products. If you can buy one of our products and the penny can drop, you can start to think about all the other changes in your life um, that start to contribute to actually living a long and sustainable future for both New Zealand and our world. You have an international family, um, mm-hmm. originally a German family. Um, 
So you can you probably look out a lot at the rest of the world. Why is New Zealand so slow in this space, do you think, in the green space? I think I'd probably disagree that New Zealand is slow. For when you walk down the supermarket aisle here, you can, for example, look at the laundry category and you can actually see that almost 50% of that is actually dedicated to green space and green products. You know, you look at somewhere like um, Australia, they're a little bit further behind us and they're not quite there. More so in the cleaning space and now in the personal care space. But when you look across even a little bit further into Southeast Asia, you know, they're a lot further behind on that journey. Um, but I also, my prediction is that they're going to move a lot faster than anywhere mm. else. So you might find one or two products in the supermarket there versus here in New Zealand. So you sell into Southeast Asia and you seem to have quite a thriving business up there. What are you sort of trading on with your products up there? So when we're in, so for example, when I'm in China, you know, I uh, went into a consumer's home there and we were interviewing them just around, you know, why they're into green products and what they buy. And that when they think of New Zealand, even Australia, for that for that matter. <laughs> let's not say uh, that. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> um, but they, they actually think of us as natural and the brand New Zealand is natural. And, you know, when it means when natural equals safe to them. So that brand recognition from New Zealand um, actually goes a long way for, for, for making people feel safe. Yeah. What more can you do in Asia as a whole in terms of growing your market there? Um, for us to grow in Asia, you know, we've, we've, we, we have a big direct-to-consumer business, which is mostly online. Um, our next challenge is actually getting more in, into general trade and getting more into stores. So in Japan, we've actually got three flagship little stores there, but we're also across a number of retailers there. And actually being able to do that across more, more other markets um, is kind of the next big growth plan. So to contrast Asia with a, a country like Australia, where there is a very established and highly competitive green segment mm. um, of the market of consumer products, how do you mark yourself out there? In Australia, for mm. example. Mm. So in, in Australia, they have they do have a lot of green products, but I think we're somewhat tainted in Australia because there's, there's, there's green products that are actually, uh, how do I say cheaper products let's say and they actually yeah. give us they, they're more of a, a detriment to the brand because the products aren't as effective as let's say an eco-store product so we actually right. come in at more of a premium in Australia and that's probably one of our challenges how do we demonstrate to consumers um, the effectiveness of our products and the care that we take in making our products comparatively. When we compare you against a, a Unilever or a, a huge company that do spend some of their R&D and, and create some brands that are green, are you greener than them? Are you a better proposition than them? Look, I have no doubt that based on our founding principles and how we act and what we do, you know, we're a Kiwi family-owned company that's able to um, live true to everything that we do all the way through our supply chain. When you look at someone like Unilever, you know, they are almost inspiring in a sense because they are so large, but the changes, the smaller changes that they make have such a huge impact. So um, I take my hat off to them to be able to make that change and act that, but they're never going to be able to be as authentically green all the way through as a brand like EcoStore is. And just finally, it's the company's 30th birthday this year. <laughs> what are you doing to celebrate and um, what exciting things have you got in store? Um, yes, so very excited. This year's our 30th birthday. We are, you know, we've got some on-pack marketing. We've got some videos popping out very soon. We're giving our store a little bit of a refresh and ultimately just trying to get out there and, and let people know that, you know, 
we're not resting. You know, we've got a bright future ahead of us and, you know, really looking forward to one day being known as the number one brand for health, sustainability and well-being. Pablo, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.